Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Passing Shot. Murray and Burton's win Virtual Madrid Open. Professional tennis returns in Germany. And kicking off a new series, we discuss some of our all-time favourite tennis matches. And welcome to The Passing Shot, the tennis podcast by fans, for fans, with your host Joel and Kim. On today's episode, we're going to be kicking off a new series and looking at some of our favourite all-time tennis matches. We'll also be catching up on the tennis news as well, uh, a little bit to catch up on with the virtual Madrid Open that's just happened. Andy Murray back on a virtual tennis court, um, as well as the uh, news that Tennis is actually starting up again in some parts of the world in Germany. Uh, but before we kind of get into all of that, Kim, how are you doing? How is how is lockdown treating you? Much the same as last week, Joel. <laughs> the weeks <laughs> are going by fairly fast, actually, uh, despite the lack of sport, which is really weird. Uh, I think I've kind of just got used to it now. But having said that, I did tune in and watch a bit of Madrid. Um, I didn't watch an awful lot, I have to say. It wasn't really my cup of tea, just kind of seeing it on a playstation i don't know what did you think yeah it was a bit obviously it's kind of a completely new scenario new situation and i think you know it's the first thing to kind of recognize is that you know living in these times they're going to open up new opportunities and of course you know this is you know one of them in the tennis world and i thought it was kind of really interesting to see i think in terms of what i liked uh, i absolutely loved the players you know buying into it and creating like their almost kind of their own walk-ons uh you know up their kind of uh you know, up their stairs in their in their homes to like the controller. I really love that and like pretending to like warm up their thumbs. And um, I really liked the way that kind of the players got invested in it and were kind of really you know enthusiastic about you know getting creative and and kind of showing it off on on social media. Um, so yeah, I think that was kind of one of the things I, that I was like I really liked. And I think I saw I think it was Belinda Bencic. She really went all out in like her tennis gear as I said, kind of walking up the stairs. And um, yeah, I just thought it was great to kind of see the players getting really enthusiastic about it because, you know, we've not seen them on a TV. We've not seen them, you know, uh, you know watching YouTube highlights or, where, or whatever as fans over the last, you know, few months. So it's just almost kind of great. You know, it's just kind of great to see them again, really. Yeah, no, I thought that was that was good. Like the best bit was seeing the players, seeing them engage with it, like the walk-ons. Yeah, I thought Benchic probably owned that one. I just like the little bits in the corner where you can just see their faces as they're playing. 
You just want to see their homes in the background. I know. Don't you, I want to see what what they've got on like their bookshelves <laughs> or like I don't know. I just find it really interesting. It's like through the keyhole, but you know who the person is. Were you hoping to see like Stan's shorts like framed in the background? Well, yeah, potentially. God, they're coming up a lot on this podcast, aren't they? His lovely shorts. Um, but no, yeah, I I. I I didn't really like actually watching the tennis so much. I just liked having the players kind of interacting, having a bit of a laugh. So that was nice to see that. Um, I don't think this format would, I don't think I'd want to see this every week. I think it would get a bit repetitive after a while, but I think it was a good kind of one-off thing. And obviously Andy Murray won. So we should give him credit for that because he's now won the tournament on three different surfaces if you can call the virtual sphere a surface um and obviously andy has donated his prize money half of it has gone to the nhs and half has gone to like the players relief fund so it's obviously all for a good cause and um kiki burton's won the women's event as well and i think she was actually due to defend the madrid title so she has succeeded in doing that to some extent. I, I love, I love that the idea. She's she's done the the non virtual virtual back to back, a very innovative uh, double uh, def- for a defending champion. Um, but yeah, I think um, yeah, it was kind of great to see. I guess players, uh, you know, getting involved. I think one of the things that I think they could have done better with is the you know they had this like commentary over the top of the of the players and i i was almost kind of at the point where i think it's like more insightful and more interesting if you just let the kind of players do their own commentary because um you know they are tennis players they're professionals at the end of the day and it would be really i think what bring it up a level is kind of almost kind of getting them to kind of talk about you know the tactics or you know that sort of that sort of level um that sort of layer that i think they could have bring to it yeah almost as if they were on a real court And it's like, if I was actually doing this shot in real life, I would choose to go here because of X, Y and Z. Yeah, then it could almost be more of an educational thing as well. Um, I think when I did first tune in, they had obviously lost connection because I was watching on like Eurosport and Alex Koretcha was just like having to awkwardly sort of chat uh, while they were waiting for everything to like turn on again. Did you see that? um, I think Diego Schwartzman was meant to play Andy Murray in the semi-finals, but due to a weak Wi-Fi connection, Andy Murray, uh, sorry, Schwartzman had to concede a walkover. So, I mean, I love that idea that, like, I think that's got to be one of the most random walkover reasons. Uh, It happens to the best of us. It's good to know that, like, even top tennis players have poor Wi-Fi. Um, And also, Feliciano Lopez had a bit of a a joke because he said that Rafa couldn't play because he'd like injured his back reaching for his game controller which and everyone believed him I think I mean I think we believed him as well to be fair I believed him I mean I, I tweeted about <laughs> it from the account thinking oh I thought you know generally I saw that and I thought oh this this tournament hasn't got off to the best of starts has it uh, but yeah fortunately that was not the case um and Rafa was able to play but we were just very gullible um but yeah I don't know if they're going to do this again I think like I think it could catch on but just kind of every now and again maybe they could do another one on like Wimbledon I don't I don't know what um different surfaces I assume this this PlayStation game has all the different surfaces so they could do a grass court one couldn't they maybe Federer will rock up for that 
Yeah, I like the idea that I think it could work. I think it could like coexist when the tours get back up and running. I do wonder if it's a sort of, you know, in the, you know, in the grounds of the events and you have the um, you know, fans can go line up for like an autograph from players. And I wonder whether it could be like there's a stand somewhere, you know, at a grandstand, for example, where it's like, oh, face off against, you know, uh, some uh, a player playing tennis against them like virtually um so i could i could see that that happening i know there are a few comments that the game was almost kind of like not up to like not up to scratch um and you know whether there's kind of improvements to be made with with the game and and you know i think i think potentially you know people governing bodies like the atp like the wata maybe they should be looking at partnering with a you know games developer to really kind of make a you know, a tennis licensed game like FIFA, because I think, you know, I think what this is showing, as, as you said, this is very new. It's almost kind of, this was a test and, you know, I think there is appetite for it, but I think there's a, almost kind of a lot can be done on that sort of product side of it. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure that's an avenue they could possibly pursue going forwards. And yeah, I like the idea that you could maybe like have a bit of a play on it while you're at an event, perhaps like if during a rain delay or something. And moving on, Joel, we actually have some real tennis that's happened uh, this weekend in Germany. It's kind of the first actual players that have stepped back on court. So they've done a little exhibition um, featuring Dustin Brown and seven other players, including randomly the British number nine, Jan Schwinski, who I think is based in Germany anyway. Um, so, yeah, that's been happening this weekend. Obviously, Germany is so far ahead of other countries and kind of getting back to normality. So they've been able to do this little event uh, near Koblenz at the Base Tennis Academy. Um it's going to obviously have necessary health and safety measures in place. So they've obviously, um, they're not touching hands at the net. They're going to, I don't know, touch rackets instead. There's no ball boys, no fans, no line judges. So they're obviously doing it a very kind of watered down version. Um, it's not for any points or, or anything. It's not, it doesn't count. It's just, uh, I guess, prize money is involved. So it's, I guess, aimed at lower ranked players to, to kind of keep them earning something during this time. And I think it's only for players based within about 90 minutes of the event. So it's obviously got a very limited reach. Uh, but this is maybe an indication of what they could start to do in other parts of the world for people who are based locally to at least kind of get some money. And I don't know, something's going to start off from somewhere, hopefully from it. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's interesting to note that, you know, these sorts of events, um you know, it, it, you know, does this give us an indication of, you know, what tennis is going to be like in the future? Like, for example, our handshakes going to happen, <laughs> you know, it's like really kind of I think like every sort of aspect of a tennis match is going to be under, you know, big time kind of scrutiny at the moment in terms of do we actually need to do that? Is there, um, you know, is there an alternative? And I think, you know, events like this are going to give us an indication of, you know, what potentially the, you know, the future might hold. And, you know, as you said, you know, it's an exhibition event. It, um, from what I understand, it didn't, it didn't necessarily need kind of the ATP or WTA's involvement, but I'm sure they are kind of having a close eye on it to kind of, you know, get the feedback from the players and the organizers just to understand, you know, how it worked and potentially, you know, implementing some of these, you know, features, you know, onto the tour. Um, and, you know, we, we, we spoke about, you know, when kind of the, you know, the world tour finals comes around and, you know, the next gen finals and we, you know, almost that is kind of used for experimentation and kind of testing out sort of new features. You know, it sounds like these sorts of exhibition events, you know, are really kind of 
in that position where they're cropping up, they're putting in some kind of new strategies and, you know, we, you know, organizers, governing bodies, whatever can, can learn, can learn from them, you know, and react to them. Yeah. And I think they are planning to do more of these. So there was, I think we already had, it had been announced the Muratoglu Academy in Nice was going to do an exhibition at the end of May, which I think David Goffin was supposed to be getting involved in. I think when they first announced that, we all thought, hang on, isn't that a bit soon? But it depends if they kind of make sure these measures are in place, then they, it might be suitable. I think they're going to plan to do some in America as well. Um maybe in in May sometime. And I know Rafa has said that he wouldn't mind having some exhibitions at his academy in Mallorca. I guess maybe just for players who are based in Mallorca. I don't know. Um, Maybe just him and Jaume Munar. Uh, But yeah, I think this is a good start. Um, I don't know if anyone's like watched any of this event that's happened over the weekend. Like let us know how you thought it went. Um, obviously we can't attend any live tennis for a long time. So if we can watch even just exhibition matches, that would be, that would be something. I am kind of intrigued because I'm so used to seeing tennis though and having the ball kids just like running around getting everything. So I assume the players are going to have to you know, run after and collect and retrieve balls themselves, uh, which would be quite interesting seeing them do that. I don't know. For me, it feels a bit more of a a stopgap more than kind of this is going to be, you know, I don't think they're going to be able to re- replicate this at like Grand Slams, for example. But I think certainly it helps, you know, lower ranked players who, you know, might be in need of, of money and, and just want to get back on a on a tennis court and, you know, try and earn some prize money. I think it's a really kind of good, you know, stopgap for those kind of sorts of players. So, you know, at the moment, I'm kind of, you know, intrigued and, you know, more exhibitions come up we'll see how kind of how they work and yeah as they might just give us a little bit of a sneak peek into what you know the ATP and WTA tours events will look like in the future okay right let's move on now to our new series which is called my favorite match and this is going to be a new kind of feature on the show where we give a personal account of a match that we have really kind of enjoyed uh watching or remember uh from you know from in the past uh it could be a match we saw live it could be a match we saw on tv it might have historical significance it might have just been a really entertaining match um but it we're just kind of going to give an account of you know uh yeah a few matches that myself and kim would put under that category of my favorite match and what we're encouraging our listeners to do is also let us know your favorite match and please tell us why um you can reach out to the show on social media at passing shot pod or you can email us as well uh passing shot pod at gmail.com um but i'm gonna start kim with my favorite match oh yeah which is <laughs> it is the us open men's final 2012 Andy Murray versus Novak Djokovic I was there six rows from the front to see Andy Murray win (laughs) win his first Grand Slam title I think he'd been in four four Grand Slam finals up to that point hadn't won hadn't won any of them I don't think you know he hadn't even come close in any of them and as I said, it was the site, all that context, all that build up, and it was, you know, all the kind of talk in the me- in the British media was like, you know, when's it going to happen? Is it going to happen? And, you know, I think everyone was almost kind of fixated on, you know, it's go- it's going to happen. It's got to happen at Wimbledon. Uh, no, US Open 2012, Flushing Meadow, 
we were just in for an absolutely epic final with Murray victorious against Djokovic. 7-6-7-5-2-6-3-6-6-2. Five sets. I think it was joint equal longest um, US Open final, men's final in history. But yeah, it was just like a... For me, it was a. It, this is what this was a historical moment for you know for British sport, for for Scottish sport. Like it just really had. Um, it was just really on epic proportions, and the fact that you know Murray did it from, you know, it was two sets up, and then went it went back to two two sets all. It, you know, it was um, you know it was really touch and go at some points. And I remember when I was there, you know, it was just the real sort of ebb and flow, and you know that that sinking feeling coming in. You know, when it got back to two sets all, you just wondered, oh, God, this isn't going to happen, is it? Not again. <laughs> oh, sorry, as an Andy fan, going into that match, were you just kind of thinking, surely it's got to be now, he can't lose another one? Or were you just sort of like waiting for tears again at the end of the match? Like, what were you, what, what did you think his chances were? I had a feeling because I, I, I'd been there for the, two, you know, for the two weeks and, you know, I just felt, I just felt something, you know, when I was there and kind of watching him play. And you know, I remember the match was, um, I think the match was scheduled, of, of course, for Sunday, but it actually got postponed to the Monday uh, because of uh, because of the weather. And, you know, there was just lots of, there was just this, I just had this feeling that, you know, he had learned a lot. You know, Ivan Lendl was now in his camp. You know, I just think he was ready to kind of, you know, push on and, you know, he needed, I think he needed those defeats to kind of get the experience. And, you know, it, it genuinely did feel like it was this moment. And, you know, I know when we talk about Grand Slam finals and we always kind of say, oh, the first set is so crucial and is so important. But I distinctively remember that that tie break being absolutely critical. Murray won it 12 10. Um, I think he, I remember him having a number of set points. And I just remember. The wind, and you know, I, I don't know if any of our listeners have been to Arthur Ashe um, at Flushing Meadow. It's just like the wind can swirl about inside the, you know, inside the um, inside the arena, and it makes con- playing conditions really, really tricky. And you know, I was looking back at some of the the highlights of of the match. Um, you know, it, that first set, it looks quite passive. Like it looked it looks very tentative you know it looks like it's just kind of waiting for each other someone to make an unforced error but I think the reality was the wind I just remember the wind was swirling so you know it was just swirling about so much actually the the playing conditions were so so tricky and um I remember when Murray came through that first set I was just like okay strap in your seatbelts this could be this could be a historic night. Yeah, I think um, I remember watching it and I think I did have to go to bed after maybe the third set. I'm not sure, but I was like on and off, like snoozing on the sofa while it was on because um, I thought, oh yeah, when it went into the fifth, I was like, oh no. Like, because those third and fourth sets, they were pretty comprehensive, weren't they, for Novak, like 6-2, six, 6-3. Six, and you thought, oh, here we go again. But um, yeah, I mean, just really ebbed and flowed. I can't believe you were six rows from the front. That's so jammy. <laughs> how did she manage that? <laughs> in fact, I know how you managed that. But um, And also looking back, I think, you know, obviously Andy was in the Wimbledon final that year and we know how that ended. Like he cried and everyone, you know, he kind of won the heart of the nation with his tears after that final under the roof. And then obviously won the Olympics, which is kind of almost like, I think, meant to be. And I think the Olympics helped him win the US Open and then the US Open 
you know, kind of, I guess, like, would he have won Wimbledon the next year if that hadn't happened? So it all kind of fell into a nice trajectory for Andy. Um, yeah, amazing that you were there. It was really surreal. And I think what made it more surreal was the fact that, you know, there were Scottish celebrities there. I remember Sean Connery was there. And I remember, like, Americans sh- shouting out, James hey, that's James Barn, James <laughs> Barn." Um, you know, I think Alex Ferguson was there as well. And it just felt like, uh, you know, it it felt like the time the time for Murray to win his first Grand Slam was now, and you know, with with Lendl in his corner, it just felt like you know it was a it was a big moment. And the moment the moment I knew he was going to win it was in that fifth set. Um, I think he was he was serving for it. One of the games towards the end, um, a serve was called out. Uh, Andy Murray's serve was called out, and he challenged it on Hawkeye. And it was one of those challenges where it 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 just doesn't. It was in, but it was in on like the outside edge of the uh, the corner of the box, and it. And I just knew from that moment, like like he is winning. He is hundred percent winning this match. If that is going in for him by like a millimeter on the the outside edge, uh, it's definitely happening. And uh, yeah, it was just such a it was just such an epic moment. And you know, I think that you know, contextually, kind of looking back at that year. I think this kind of really solidified, you know, I know we're talking now about the big three, but really back then in 2012, it was the big four. I think that, you know, all four of the Grand Slams, each of the big four won their own. You had, you know, Djokovic win Australian Open. You had Rafa win the French Open. You had Federer win Wimbledon. And then you had Andy win the US Open. And, you know, really, it's kind of, it's really interesting to see, you know, those are the the, the tournaments they won back then, it's almost kind of like those are the ones they've dominated mm, uh, so or will be. Yeah. They will be the ones they will be most kind of closely associated with, you know, for the rest of their, you know, rest of their lives. And you know, I'll always kind of associate Andy Murray as, you know, a really good hardcore player. And I always kind of felt that, uh, you know, I in his early career, I always kind of felt that for me, he was more likely to win at Flushing Meadow than, um, than at Wimbledon. I think it's more commonly a maiden slam place, isn't it? That Wimbledon is much harder to kind of break through at. I mean, I guess in more recent years, but US Open always has that like aura of actually anyone could kind of grab it. Like we've seen Chilich, Del Potro. It's, it's, it has that kind of edge to it, doesn't it? It is a sort of wild place. You know, your audiences uh, can, can get on your back. It's at the end of the season. You know, players might be tired or, you know, have injury niggles or whatever. Um, it is one of those Grand Slams where, yeah, I think it genuinely lends itself to, you know, anything can happen. And it was just great seeing, it was just great being there to kind of, just kind of recall that moment. Because, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people will obviously, I think, define Andy Murray by, you know, the Wimbledon titles that he's won. But, you know the the first, but the first one, the first Grand Slam he won, the one he won, you know, to get over the hump was you know the U.S. Open 2012, and uh, yeah, first British man to win a major since 1936. I mean, it was just a really kind of you know epic achievement, and and from there, it it it, it kind of his trajectory was you know you're still going up, um, you know, and he was he was to have you know further grand slam success become world number one but it already kind of started i think you know from you know from that moment well joel my my match that i remember distinctly that i was at and that was quite an epic isn't quite as i don't know significant maybe as a grand slam final 
<laughs> I've chosen a round two match at Wimbledon. How about that? Love it. Yeah. Um, I was trying to think, oh, what matches have I been at that have been like real epics? And I think I've got maybe a terrible misfortune as a tennis fan. In fact, that most of the matches I tend to attend are straight sets. Um, in fact, I think every match I've been to at the O2, for example, has been a straight sets blowout. And I know there have been like a few, I know there have been a few dramatic three setters, but literally every match I've gone to has been like an annihilation. Um, but yeah, I was trying to think and... This was back in 2011, so um, quite a long time ago now. And yeah, second round, basically, um, I was camping that day uh, to see Rafa against, I think it was, oh, I don't know who was playing, someone that, I don't know, the Rafa match itself that I camped for was pretty straightforward. Um, But the first match that opened up on centre that day was Venus Williams against Kamiko Date Krum. And I don't know if anyone remembers this match from 2011, but it was a three set epic, eight, six in the final set. And like, I was just expecting it to be a complete run of the mill kind of demolition job. You know, Venus Williams, five time champion, Kamiko Date Krum, a 40 year old Japanese uh, lady who had come back from 12 years out of the game. Like, just, I mean, who, you would just not expect her to perform perhaps to a, a massively high level. Um, so we were kind of like, oh, we'll just sit and watch a bit of this and then Rafa will be on. Um, but yeah, I was sitting there for almost three hours watching Venus Williams and we were kind of like, oh, okay, Rafa's going to have to wait a bit. And I just remember it was... Um, the roof was closed, so obviously it was. I think it, I don't know if it was necessarily raining, but rain was forecast, so it was very stuffy in there. And I was getting really, really tired from having camped the night before. Um, and I was probably going to fall asleep if it had been a boring match because you know I don't know if anyone listening has camped and queued, but you do get really, really tired. And by the time you get in to see the match that you actually have camped for, you you are close to to snoozing off. But um, yeah, this match was kind of just what I needed to keep me awake. And uh, it was weird. Kamiko Date Crumb kind of raced into like an early lead. So we were kind of a bit like taken aback. And uh, then Venus came back and the first set went to a tie break. Um, so you kind of thought, oh, Venus is going to edge it and then run away with the second set. But Date Crumb got the first set tie break. And then Venus, you know, came back in the second, took the second. So into a third set, we were kind of like, mm, not really sure how it's going to go. I imagine Venus is going to lay it down now. Um, but yeah, on and on it went. Um, and obviously they didn't have last set tie breaks. So it was just could have gone on and on and on. Um, eight, six, it ended up. And I think by that point, we were all kind of waiting for it to end almost. Um, it like it was a great match, but we were all just kind of so tired. Um, and it was it was really, really stuffy in there from what I remember. Um, but yeah, it just kind of had everything. It had like... You know, Venus Williams, when she shrieks her way across the court, um, I just remember hearing that shrieking so much, which I don't mind. Some people, she was exceptionally loud. <laughs> Very loud. And also her dress. Her dress was nice. It was like a pan, like a short pantsuit It was quite puffy. Thing. I don't... Yeah, it had I... like a billowy front bit, but I really liked her outfit. Um and I I love a bit of like Venus slamming it down. I think it's great. Um but I just remember Kamiko Dato Krim is this like 
I don't know, little counterpuncher coming into the net a lot. And, you know, she's so small. She's so, like, diminutive, but she has so much power. And she was just, like, making Venus work for it so hard. And Venus was getting worked up. You know, obviously it wasn't going how she thought it was going to go. And, um, yeah, it kind of had everything. Like, just this kind of almost fairy tale victory on the cards for Darte Krim. And you thought, oh, could she, could she do it? And it was, I guess, just, you know, a classic, like, underdog battling against the great of the game and um yeah i just thought the the age of kamiko data at 40 years old to take it to venus who at the time would have been i guess almost like 10 years younger and um yeah it was just it was there was a lot of dodgy net cords as well there's quite a lot of luck going on um it kind of just had everything so that's why it kind of stuck in my mind as one of the most exciting matches that i've actually seen live because um, as I said, most of the matches I seem to have gone to have been perhaps not the most exciting. Um, and that's why I tend to lo- watch a lot of doubles at slams because I find they can often turn into epics more so. Um, but actually, I was reading up on Darte Krim and I didn't realise, I guess, at the time, but she was a real like top player back in the 90s. She was like number four in the world. She reached the semis of three different slams, including Wimbledon. So she obviously had pedigree. And I just don't think the crowd were expecting her to bring it. Yeah. And it's amazing to think that she was able to play, you know, one generation, have a break and then play a new generation and give that generation just as good a, you know, just as good as a game. And, um, uh, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's just amazing to see. And as I said, I was kind of watching the highlights earlier and I think uh, Nishikuri actually was in uh, Date Crumb's oh, really? uh, players, ah. players box. Yeah. Um, it reminded and, me uh, also, you know, um, I don't know if you remember, there was that, that, I think she was from Thailand, that player who came back or she was really quite old when she finally retired. It was like, Kum Kum something, uh, Luke Sheikha, and she beat Kvitova at the AO like in 2014. And I was at that match and that was a big shock. So um, it just reminded me of, of, you know, it has parallels to kind of, you know, kind of that. But, um, you know, Venus Williams for me, I, I, I always like to think centre court, Venus Williams and centre court go hand in hand. I always kind of associate her as the better Williams sister at, at Wimbledon. Um and I just think there's something about centre court that brings it out of her that might not necessarily happen at other, you know, other slams. And I always kind of associate, you know, um, you know, Venus Williams with, um, you know, grass court and Wimbledon. And uh, it, it just, um, you know, to see her, I guess, to see her on that on that court and, and playing, it's a sort of like a, you know, Rafa at the French Open, you know, Federer at Wimbledon equivalent. Yeah, absolutely. And I know Serena's got more Wimbledon titles than Venus now, but at the time, Venus, I think, well, must have had more. But for me, yeah, she is in a way more synonymous with the grass. Obviously, that is her far and above her most successful surface. Um, So, yeah, it was just a very kind of bizarre but exciting match. And I I was looking up because I couldn't remember what happened to Venus in that tournament, but that was the year that she went on to lose to Svetlana Peronkova in the fourth round, who then reached the semifinals. And she was another player that I really enjoyed watching, Peronkova. Um, and, you know, it was quite a random year, actually, I suppose. Um, and Kvitova ended up winning. But um, And also, another fun fact, that day was the second day of Isna Mahu, I think. Or it was the... Oh, the, was it? Oh, it could have been okay. the third day of Isna Mahu. Um, so 
obviously at the change of ends, they show the scores from other courts. So everyone was like in between this match, like watching the scoreboard. And there was like collective gasps from the audience as the kind of score just kept building and building. You know, it was just ridiculous. So that's another thing I distinctly remember from from that day. I guess there's also we're going to do one more favourite match of ours. And this was actually one we were both at. Um, and it was the first round of the Australian Open in 2018. And that was Kyle Edmund versus Kevin Anderson, where you know, I think that was almost was that the first match of the first day? It was like. I, I think, think it was. was. Like the... Yes, it was on show court three, I think. The one yeah, that's like opposite. it was on the outside yeah. courts. And we went and got our seats and we were like, I, I remember there being quite a, you know, there was quite a good, healthy British contingent there. And, you know, it it was one of those matches where, you know, we were going in, you know, we were, you know, thinking Kevin Anderson serve, he's going to serve a million aces and, you know, Edmund is probably going to lose in uh, you know three tie break sets or, or whatever, but um, you know it was one of those matches where I think uh, at the time you know um, maybe even still for Edmund probably one of the biggest you know match wins of his career. Um, you know, you know Andy Murray wasn't playing. He was I think he was the only British man in the singles draw, and I think you know, you know this was his opportunity to really kind of be like, hey, you know, yes, Andy Murray's going through injury troubles at the moment, but you know, I I can you know I can take the you know the mantle from him, and you know I think this was that match that almost kind of showed you you know Kyle Edmund's forehand. It showed you Kyle Edmund's potential, and you know he came through that in in five sets. Um, I think he went he won six seven six three three six six three six four. So the fact that he battled da- battled back from you know a set down on two occasions to win in five, it just showed you that at the end of the day he just broke Kevin Anderson which is a very hard thing to do. Yeah, I guess over the course of the match, he just managed to like read his serve and his forehand was obviously firing and, and everything was kind of going in. And yeah, he really surprised me. I was so impressed with what I saw from Kyle that day. And obviously it was the start of a magnificent run to the semifinals. Uh, but like, if you just take the first round as, as a whole, like it was just so amazing that, yeah, he came through because obviously not an ideal draw getting 11th seed in the first round. And obviously Kevin Anderson, the year before he'd been in the US Open final. Um, and obviously later that year, he would be in the Wimbledon final. So he this was the peak of Anderson's kind of career, to be honest, like this period of time. So for Edmund to have performed so well against him was just, you know, such a nice, nice thing to witness. And the crowd, I think, were a bit more pro Edmund from what I remember. Like there was a really good atmosphere. Obviously AO has such a good atmosphere, like pretty much all the time everywhere. And I do remember, yeah, it definitely was the first match on the first day. Um, it was really hot, wasn't it? it? I, just, well, it was, I mean, it's no, always it hot. In the yeah, opposite. well, actually it wasn't that hot, I think, because I'm sure Collies that year, it was like raining quite a bit. And so I think it, the Monday of that tournament wasn't horrendous, but it got gradually hotter as each day went on. I remember actually my friend bought me this like Turkish gazleme thing, um, which I was like eating just before the match. So now I've got thoughts of like, I've got like cheese and spinach in my head now and I really want some. Um, But yeah, I love those like random memories that come flooding back. Um, And then obviously we, was it Dennis Isterman in the second round? I remember that. That was really hot, that that match. 
he retired. Did Istamin was injured though? He in, was in very that. yeah. He could barely run. I think to be honest. Um, but yeah, this this match is one of the top. I think that helped because you know this was a this was a brutal match. You know it was you know five sets. Um, you know I think it was over you know three plus hours or whatever, and it was it was almost kind of a bit of good fortune that then you know his next match was an injured Dennis Istamin because you know Anderson was a, you know he's a very tough competitor, and I remember you know, this guy's serve's got to break down at some point, you know, and Edmonds just almost got to live until that point and make sure he's in the match and then, you know, pounce on that opportunity. And I, I, you know, I distinctly remember at the end of, you know, I think it was, I think it was like during the fourth set, I was almost kind of like, Anderson must be thinking, what have I got to do to kind of put this guy away? And, you know, from there, I think, from there, I think, you know, Edmund kind of just showed you that he really hadn't had the, you know, the bit between his teeth and was like, right, you know, I, you know, I've, you know, I've lost almost kind of recognition. Look, you know, up to this point in my career on the ATP circuit, I've lost matches from winning positions, but that's not going to, you know, that's not going to happen today. I'm going to be really mentally strong. I mean, physically strong and I'm going to come through, you know, in, in the distance. And, you know, I want to say this was his first ever five set win. I could be wrong on that, but you know, it's always, you know, I think it's always such a, you know, great achievement to win, you know, in five sets. And the fact that you do that from, you know, one set down, two sets to one down against someone as good as Kevin Anderson, you know, it just shows you, you know, the potential that, you know, Carl Edmund has. And, you know, has he reached, has he reached these heights since? Uh, you know, I think, you know, these, this is almost a sort of, this is the, this is the sort of match. This is the sort of level he, he wants to get back to. No, for sure. I think this was a massive breakthrough for him. I mean, and he was also too loved down, I think, in the fifth set. He, he went a breakdown at the start. So kept having to come back. Um, I don't know what it was about him. Maybe just something finally clicked that meant he was like mentally able to get over the finish line. And obviously, I mean, I would love to see this Kyle Edmund back on tennis court. <laughs> what we saw at AO 2018. <laughs> we just need to be at every tournament he plays. <laughs> yeah. I remember actually what was so great about this match as well was and one of the reasons I love the Australian Open is, you know, when he came off court, um, you know, I, I remember getting a photo of him. I put I probably put it on the Instagram at, at some point. Um, but yeah, I remember getting a photo of him and I love that sort of that um that feeling, that connection you can get between fans and players at events like the Australian Open and kind of almost kind of, you know, bask in that moment, um, you know, with the players, because this was, a, you know, this was a big deal. And, you know, the fact that he was then able to kind of, you know, connect with the fans straight afterwards, you know, to go out, you know, I think like, that must have felt, you know, that must have felt pretty good. I wonder also if the fact the match was like the first thing in the day, whether that helped him rather than it being like a late night thriller. I, I don't know. That would, that does change like the dynamics and the atmosphere, because they were quite, I mean, I love the AO like, late night matches. Like they are second to none for, in terms of the atmosphere. And I remember, I don't know if I've spoken about this before on the podcast, but I remember like 2014, I had some ridiculous day where it was, I think play had been suspended because it was so hot. And then the matches didn't really start until like 5 p.m. So they went on until about three in the morning. But it just so happened that there was like, about four or five five set matches going on at the same time and you could almost like once it hit midnight you know there wasn't many people left in the grounds you could go from one court to another and like watch the endings of all these matches um it was fantastic um it was great but and of course Kyle Eppen went on to the he got to the semi-finals um and yeah it really kind of started with that win over Anderson that gave him that 
belief um and the momentum that kind of took took him through um yeah to the to the semi-finals so again that was another of our kind of favorite matches uh our listeners have also kim been getting in touch with us with some of their favorite matches should we just should we just go through a few of them yeah sure um got cameron taylor who said his has to be andy murray versus novak Djokovic at the australian open in 2012 uh, hit every ball, was on the edge of my seat for almost five hours. Incredible to think that Novak backed it up with a six-hour marathon with Nadal in the final thereafter. Well, I, yeah, I do remember this. That was it the was... final when they sat down at oh, the ceremony, isn't it? I, as a Rafa fan, like I was so stressed in that match, uh, the final, and six hours, and it was just so tense. And yeah, they were just absolutely shattered. And yeah, I, I agree with Cameron. I don't know how Novak managed to do that on the back of like an epic with with Andy Murray. Um, but I think Andy was so close to beating Novak that day, wasn't he? It was, he was, he was getting closer. It was, it, yeah, he was getting closer. <laughs> I felt like that was a narrative with every sort of loss. Yeah. You know, you had it at Grand Slam up until, you know, US Open, oh, he's getting closer. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, yeah, I think that tournament for me, that semi-final and that final, I just, I just, I distinctly remember those two matches, and we could have easily had you know, both of those matches in. Yeah, you know, we will bring them up in the future. But you know, I think we'll look back at that tournament and Djokovic in that tournament as like almost like a physical blueprint uh, of you know what a tennis player could do on court because eleven hours on, through a semi-final and a final against two of the big four or whatever that is that is some going isn't it monstrous um we also had at v16 queen who said venus serena 2008 wimbledon was one of her favorite matches uh the quality was very high overall and watching both williams sisters playing good at the same time is always a sight to behold i think that's a good point because we have seen a lot of finals where they haven't both performed to their best so it's kind of hard to tell a bit of a bouchard well yes uh but in terms of the williams sisters you know it has been a bit one-sided perhaps or you've never felt that those matches have necessarily been the greatest um even though obviously both of them are two of the greatest players ever um so yeah that was that was a good match um and also that year obviously 2008 wimbledon rafa against roger i mean that is obviously typically called the greatest match of all time um and at sluggish luca has suggested that one and obviously that was right up there um for me as well but i almost felt like it's so obvious that we didn't kind of go down that route um he also said Kerber versus Kvitova in the Fed Cup final in 2014 uh because of the incredible quality um over well in yeah over three sets in that match so excellent suggestions there um also at Panagiotis said Radvanska versus Muguruza in the Singapore semi-finals in 2015 um I assume that's the end of season championships i don't remember that one i'm gonna have to gonna have to youtube that one and get some highlights of that one going because that's uh that's that's flown by me that one i have to say uh, <laughs> uh and then oh bit of doubles love here from i am peter pan uh the 2019 wimbledon doubles final um because my favorite player won her first grand slam and became number one and because i was there um and that was when sue Weishe and barbora stritzkova won wimbledon Stritzkova had a really good tournament, didn't she, in Wimbledon 2019? Yeah. Oh my gosh, that was only last year, wasn't it? Yeah. I think like, you remember her you know, of annoyingly kind of beating Conta and getting to <laughs> the semis of the singles? Yeah, or yeah semis. Was it the semis. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but she got to the 
yeah, she got to the doubles final as well, and she you know won the title. So you know, I think you know we were yeah remembering Stritzelberg is excellent doubles player, excellent singles player, and um, yeah, it was really kind of the icing on the cake in that tournament. Yeah, I mean, there are so many matches. Like I could list about ten more right now, but I think we'll save them for maybe another podcast. Um, maybe we'll do some non-Grand Slam matches. We'll do some doubles. Whatever, really. Like, um, you know, send us all your suggestions because we'd love to chat through some of the other most kind of famous matches or or maybe matches that are just memorable. Maybe the quality of the tennis wasn't necessarily the best, but something really interesting happened. I don't know, like epic moments from the tennis world. We would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, let us know. Uh, we can be contacted on social media at passing shot pod on email passing shot pod at gmail.com yeah let us know your favorite tennis matches remember to subscribe to the show on apple podcast spotify wherever you're wherever you're listening to us and if you are listening to us on apple make sure if you are enjoying it to give us a rating uh, and leave us a comment but yeah for now uh, i think that's it for this episode of the passing shot We'll be back next week. I think we might be doing a little bit of a trip down memory lane with the Madrid Masters. So I hope you can join us for that. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.